All right, good evening, people. Well, this is the last session of this class, and uh, we got a lot to cover. And so we're just going to dive into this. I told Laura, I'm telling everybody else, make sure to remind me at the end. I've got handouts in here. Um, there's a web address to the online podcast for, for all of the sessions that you can get to, as well as all of the scriptural references are also in there. So. So you don't have to be concerned with writing them down because they're, they're all here, okay? I know that disappoints Apostle Linda. She is the ultimate note taker. <laughs> but, I don't, but I don't have your notes, so you can write your notes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. Oh. And so what we're going to do is we're, we're going to finish up uh, the Old Testament uh, scriptures referenced by Jesus in his uh, New Testament ministry teachings. And I purposely, I, I left out all of the scriptures where he is referencing himself as the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures because that's the last phase we're going to get into. Okay, And so we've got three more here, and then we're going to jump into that. All right? All right, so let's get started. Um, to complete this, let's go to Exodus 3, verse 4. And this is when Moses is meeting with God. And he says, uh, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And so we see here that God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac and, and whatnot. And so Jesus is going to use this in his teachings. And so let's go over to Matthew chapter 22. And let's drop down to verse 23. And the subheading in, my, uh, in the Christian Standard Bible says uh, the Sadducees and the resurrection. And so it says here that in verse 23, that same day some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came up to him and questioned him, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and raise offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among them. And so they go through this and they said, you know, now what happens, you know, Jesus, uh, whose wife is she going to be, you know, in the resurrection? Their, their issue here was not this was a smokescreen. You know, they were just trying to trap Jesus into agreeing with them that there is no resurrection. So that was the whole point of this thing. And so they, they went, you know, these, these suckers were pretty sly. They're, they're trying to, you, you would think that by this time they would have learned their lesson that yeah. stop trying to trick Jesus. <laughs> because it never ends well. It never ends well. And so, and so when Jesus is talking, you just say, okay, 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can have whatever uh, thoughts, you know, flying through your, your brain and your head. But every time somebody tries to trap them or whatever, they get embarrassed. And so I, I don't know. So Jesus answered, you are mistaken because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. <laughs> so Jesus said, you're mistaken because you are stupid. You are, <laughs> you are trying to trap me and you're doing this publicly. It's not going to go well for you. And so he says in verse 30, for the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given uh, in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now concerning the resurrection of the dead. Now this is when he's getting to their issue. You know, it says, okay, okay, here's the answer to the question that you asked. But here's the answer to what you're really asking, you know. <laughs> and so it says, now concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read of what it was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is the God. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. And so he's telling them, you don't know what the scripture says. The word doesn't say I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Jacob. I was the God of Isaac. It says, the word says, I am. And so if, if it's I am, you know, the implication is that they're still alive. Right? And so I don't know how many hundreds of years this is because God is talking to Moses, you know, after Abraham. But... <clears throat> You know, his, his physical body obviously has, has, has perished. But there's something else Jesus is essentially saying that you don't get, you don't understand. You know, and so I don't know why they keep doing it, but whatever. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And we are going to start in verse 3. And it says, Now what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread of whatever can be found. The, wait a minute. 1 Samuel 21, verse 3. Yeah. Okay. Now what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest told him there is no ordinary bread on hand. However, there is consecrated bread. Now this is David, you know, talking to the priest. He's, he's on the run and his, his boys are hungry, you know, because they've been moving all over the place and they're hungry. And so they come up to a priest and say, you know, give, me, give us some food. <laughs> We're hungry. So what do you have on hand? The priest told him there's no ordinary bread on hand. However, there is consecrated bread, but the young men may eat only if they have kept themselves from women. David answered him, I swear, that my, I swear that women are being kept from us as always when we go out to battle. The young men's bodies are consecrated even um, on an ordinary mission. So, of course, their bodies are consecrated today. Verse 6. So the priest gave them the consecrated bread, and there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from the presence of the Lord. Uh, when the bread was removed, it was been it had uh, been replaced with warm bread. Now remember, this bread of the presence, this this was consecrated stuff. This was only for the Levites. This was only for the priests, right? And so it wasn't to be used for anybody else. But we see here that um, that uh, the priest is essentially capitulating and said, "Look, okay, I've got some old bread. 
you know, that you guys can eat and, and whatnot. And so Jesus is going to use this. And so let's go to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to start at the top in verse 1. It says, At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some uh, heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said, to, Before I go any further, I, I kind of sympathize a little bit with the Pharisees here. Okay? Because in the Word, you know, in the Old Testament, it, it says that you must keep the Sabbath holy. Right? And God attaches conditions to that. And so here the Pharisees are seeing something that they think violates what, what their commandment is. And so then he goes on and says in verse 3, he said to them, haven't you read what, Dave, haven't you read what David did when he, um, when he and those who were with him were hungry? how he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or those with him to eat, but only for the priests. So we see here that Jesus is referencing that, but he's going to use this in his teaching. Drop down to verse seven. He's going to say, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. So Jesus is essentially setting a hierarchy, right? He's, he, he's tiering, you know, a tier, you know, tier level. He's tiering what's important. He's saying, you, in, in observing the letter of the law, you are abandoning mercy. See, so you're observing, observing the letter of the law, but you're not observing the spirit of God. Okay? The law is in place so that the spirit of God is reflected in the lives of the people. So that was the whole purpose of the law. Well, the purpose was to reveal to them how wicked they were. But the... the, 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 the the, uh, the root of it um, was to reflect the spirit of God, what's important to God. And so, but he has a hierarchy of importance here. And so Jesus is telling them, you know, in doing this, you're totally and completely ignoring that. You wouldn't do that if you understood this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If you understood the depth of what that means and where that comes from. If you, if you recognized how those words reflect what's in the heart of God, you would never do this. But because you don't know, then you stick to the law. Let's go to, this is the last one uh, that Jesus is going to reference in, in, in my series anyway, um, to, to get over to teach a point. And we're all probably going to have to marinate, meditate on what this means, because 
I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know what it's referencing, but it, it seems like whenever it happens, it's going to be obvious, whatever it looks like. And so let's go to Daniel chapter 9. And let's go to verse 27. This is Daniel prophesying of what's to come in the future. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. The, a week here, I believe, is referring to a year. <clears throat> and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Let's go to chapter 11, verse 28. The king of the north will rise, uh, the, the king of the north will return to his land with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. He will take action, then return to his own land. Verse 29, at the appointed time, he will come again to the south, but this time will not be like the first. Ships of Kittim will come against him, and, um, and being intimidated, he will withdraw. Then he will rage against the Holy Covenant and take action. On his return, he will favor those who abandon the Holy Covenant, you favor, he will favor those who defect from the faith. Basically. His forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. Let's go to chapter 12 in verse 8. I heard but did not understand, so I asked my Lord, what will be the outcome of these things? Verse 9, he said, go on your way, Daniel, for the words are secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, cleansed, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but those who have, but those who have insight will understand. Verse 11. From the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. That's three and a half years. What is this abomination of desolation? I think there may be a lot of theories out there. I have no idea what it is. But it seems like when we get to the New Testament, when Jesus speaks of this, that whatever it is, is going to be obvious. And so it's not something, it, it, and this is just my opinion, it doesn't appear to be something that, that people at that time, whenever that time is, are going to be sitting back and wondering, is, is that it or not? It seems like it's going to be obvious. <clears throat> Let's go to Matthew 24. Verse 15. 
And the subhead in my word says the great tribulation. <clears throat> so when you see what? The abomination of desolation. So that implies to me that when you see it, you're going to know what it is. It doesn't say if you see. Right? <laughs> it says, so when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place. So now Jesus is referencing what Daniel prophesied. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on his housetop, housetop must not come down and get things out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to the pregnant woman and nursing mothers in those days. That verse always has bothered me. Verse 20. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. I find that interesting. It says, pray that your escape may not be on. Only God the Father knows the timing of this, so he knows what season it's going to be. Right? So what does this mean? Is Jesus being coy or maybe... Do the believers have some kind of influence over the timing on this? I don't know. Verse 21. For at that time, there will be great distress, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless, uh, unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved, but those days will be cut short because of the elect. Now, what does that mean? The days will be cut short because of the elect. Is the Lord's grace and mercy going to be cut short because of his elect? Or will the elect do something to cut those days short? I mean, read it. It says, but those days will be cut short because of the elect. Is he prophesying something that the elect is going to do in order to cut the day short? Or is he saying what he's going to do to cut the day short? I, I don't know. <laughs> Verse 23. If anyone tells you then, see, here's the Messiah, and over here, do not believe it. Uh... See verse 22. Oh, okay. I finished what I wanted to do. So, uh, so the point is, is that here we have Jesus expanding on Daniel's prophecy, but there's still questions. <laughs> right? <laughs> there's still questions. So he's, he's given more depth to, to the prophetic word that Daniel gave, but he didn't, he didn't complete the sentence. You know, so we don't know exactly how that's going to play out. And with that, we are finished with that phase. Um, that being, uh, you know, the Old Testament script scriptures referenced by Jesus in his New Testament teachings. Now, he continued to teach, but now what we're going to go over 
is these teachings are pointing to himself as the um, revelation um, or the manifestation, I should say, of the coming king that is spoken forth in the Old Testament. Okay? So let's go to Isaiah 61. Verses 1 and 2. We all have heard this a bazillion times. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn. Who has never heard that before? <laughs> who has never heard this less than a hundred times? <laughs> okay. Let's go over to Luke chapter four. Let's drop down to verse 16. I'm reading from Luke, but this also appears in Matthew and Mark, I believe. But anyway, it says, He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. As usual. So this was this was this was his routine. This was his process. <clears throat> it, it it makes me wonder a little bit because you know the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and those people they didn't like Jesus. So why did they allow him to do this? You know, <laughs> you know. Can you imagine? You know a pastor of a church allowing people to come in that they disagree with to preach to his flock. Huh? <laughs> but that's what was going on. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he, as usual, he entered the, um, the synagogue on Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. <laughs> so they're making it easy. Are given it to him. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, uh, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set, the oppressed, and set free the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. When I read this, it makes me wonder how long of a dramatic pause did Jesus make? Because I can see him reading this, roll the scroll back up, give it to the attendant and sit down and look at everybody. And they're just waiting. (laughs) 
And then at the appropriate time, in verse 21, he says, he began by saying to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. So Jesus is revealing himself, who he is, to those who should understand it because they should be familiar with these Old Testament prophecies. He's essentially saying that scripture that you're familiar with, that's referring to me. Let's go to Malachi 3. And it says in verse 1, see, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. Let's go to Luke chapter 7 and verse 24. So Jesus is out in the wilderness with John and the people that are gathered there. And it says in verse 24, after John's messengers left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who are splendidly dressed and live in luxury are in royal palaces. They're not here. So why are you here? (laughs) What then did you go out to see? So this is the third time he's at. He's pressing them. Why are you here? What did you come to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. A prophet? Yes. You know, oh, I think he's kind of referring to John a little bit here. You know, but more than a prophet. And then it says in verse 27, this is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. He will prepare your way before you. And so this seems like, because even in, um, let's see, in, in the subheading in my Bible, it says the praise of John the Baptist. And so it seems like this is pointing to, to John, but it says a messenger will be sent to prepare the way. Prepare the way for whom? See, so it seems like it's about John, but it's really about, in my opinion, revealing the whom the way is being prepared for. That being Jesus. And so Jesus, in in kind of a sidecar way, is referring to himself, is revealing himself. You know, you come out to see crazy man John, but what you didn't know is that you were going to see something greater than John. You were going to come face to face with something greater than John. Let's go to Psalms chapter 8. Verse 2. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, 
You have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. Let's go to Matthew 21. Drop down to verse 14. The blind and lame came to see him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Notice how quickly they ignored what they had seen. They saw miracles. They saw, they witnessed they were eyewitnesses to miracles. And because of what the children were shouting, that left their, you know, memory like that. And their indignation took over. Why were they indignant? Because they were prideful. This guy is doing things that we have never seen, that we cannot do. Other people are recognizing it, and our place of, of, of um, respect and whatnot is being compromised. We don't like it. You know, we do not like that. So everything that we've seen and witnessed is rubbish. <laughs> you know, we want it all. We want to be able to see, witness, and do these things and maintain our respect and hierarchy and, and the culture and, and everything else. And this guy is threatening all that. See, it makes me wonder, like, if what I'm going to say an obvious to everybody prophet of the Lord descending, descended on the world scene. I wonder how many of the recognized church personnel would feel some kind of way. <laughs> Do you know? So that's why, you know, I sympathize with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I, I, I look at what they did and I shake my head. But then if I'm honest with myself, you know, I have to say, okay, Mike, if you were alive at that time in that situation, how would you have responded? You know. And so... The word says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I think we need to extend mercy to some of these Old Testament characters in our hearts because we, we, you know, we think oh, they were so stupid. How could they do that? Well, I could see how they would. And I'm not above thinking that I might not have fallen into that. And what that does is give me caution today to try to make sure that I don't fall into that in different forms 
today. You know, because there is such a thing, <clears throat> there is such a thing as spiritual pride. I see it all the time. You know, I see it by the way people respond to different ones based on their perception of what their spiritual maturity is. I see it a lot, unfortunately. And, and so we, we need to guard against that. Because what does that presume? That presumes that we know stuff. But the more you read this word, if your reaction isn't like mine, the more I read, the more I realize how much I don't know. You know, that ought to keep us humble. You know, now I gotta admit, sometimes I have to really focus and pay attention when little John is prophesying at the mic. And so I compared to him, and I was like, that was simple, but that was profound. You know, and so we can absorb from anybody. Person who just got saved, it's three o'clock in the afternoon, and they just got saved and baptized at noon that day. We can still learn from that person. <clears throat> they might not have all the word, but I bet you they got a word <laughs> that we could benefit from. And so we see here that the children are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and the, the Pharisees and the scribes don't like it. And he said, and, and said to him, uh, and so they're saying to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, yes. Have you never read, you have prepared praise from uh, the mouths of infants and nursing babies. So he's referencing Psalms 8. You can almost hear Jesus thinking, you guys are supposed to be the experts in this thing. Haven't you ever read this? <laughs> Let's go to Psalms 118. Drop down to verse 19. And the word says, Open the gates of righteousness for me. I will enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the Lord's gate. The righteous will enter through it. I will give thanks to you because you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord. It is wondrous in our sight. Now remember, you know, <clears throat> that this is a psalm of thanksgiving for victory and, and whatnot, okay? And so this is not a prophetic word as such. You know, it's not a prophet giving a, a future thing. This is, this is a psalm that somebody has written with regard to their 
current events. You know what? The, I don't believe this is David, but I'm not sure about that. <clears throat> and so, in, but the point is, it says, you know, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So let's go to Matthew 21, verse 33. All right, because I backed this one up quite a ways. <clears throat> the parable of the vineyard owner. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, uh, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and put a watchtower and, and built a watchtower. He leased it to um, tenant farmers and went away. Mm -hmm. When the time came to uh, harvest fruit, he sent his servants uh, to the farmers to co uh, collect the fruit. The farmers took the servants, beat one, killed the other, and, and stoned the third. And the paraphrase, he went on, he says, well, I'll send my son. They won't do anything to my son. And, and they did it to him. And so, uh, see, so they killed him. And so in verse 40, it says, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? And so this is Jesus asking the people. So, you know, he sent, he sent some workers. They beat him up, killed one and whatnot. He sent some more. They did something similar. Then he said, okay, I'll send my son. I know they're not going to do anything to him. They took him. They seized him. They beat him and killed him. And so Jesus is saying, okay, what should happen to, to the dudes that are doing this? <clears throat> Verse 40, 41. So he says, what will the owner do? So they say in verse 41, he will completely destroy those terrible men and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. They don't know that they're prophesying. <laughs> they're prophesying against themselves. Right? He will completely destroy those terrible men. <laughs> I can see Jesus saying, hmm, you get it. <laughs> you know? And so Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And not, so now he's revealing what this parable was about. It's a, he, he sucked them into the parable, got them to respond to the parable, and says, oh, this is about you. This is similar to what Nathan did with David. Right? Because Nathan was talking about this terrible man who, who did and said, David, what, what should be done to this man? <laughs> you know, well, he should be, you know, killed. He says, David, that man is you. Now, what was David's response? He immediately fell face down. He didn't try to point the finger at anybody else. He's like, I'm guilty. <laughs> But that wasn't their response. <laughs> Therefore, the kingdom of God uh, will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls will be shattered. And so, you know, whoever. And so what did David do? David fell on the stone. 
and it says he will be broken to pieces, and he was. He paid a price. He, he, he uh, immediately repented and whatnot, but that doesn't mean that his actions did not have consequences. He stayed in the favor of God, but he still paid consequences. It's like with your children, they do something wrong and whatnot, and you know they confess, they own up to it. That doesn't mean you're not going to get punished. You're just not going to get punished at the same level you would have gotten punished <laughs> if you didn't come clean. But punishment is not an option. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you get to pick the degree. And so David fell on the stone, but for those who who are stubborn and don't want to comply and whatnot, the word says that the stone is going to fall on you and you will be crushed. You will be shattered. One says you will be broken, but broken bones heal. Shattered bones don't. <laughs> and so there is the warning. Let's go to Psalms 110. In verse 1, this is a psalm of David. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So John wrote Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I would have to assume that some of these psalms that David is writing, he's... I don't, I don't believe he thinks he's prophesying, but he's writing stuff about his situation, but they're still prophetic because they will occur in time. So it's not like Daniel. Daniel knew that he was prophesying about future events. A lot of the other prophets knew that they were prophesying about future events, either you know, within the net, you know, within let's say 50 to 75 years or off into the future. But they knew what they were doing. But in David's Psalms, I don't think he knew because a lot of them were written under duress. So I don't think that he thought that he was prophesying. He was just essentially writing a love letter to the Lord. That's the way I read it. You know, but we see that a lot of this stuff is prophetic. You know, this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What do you think was going through his head when he wrote this? Do you think that he was referring to his situation? I, I don't know, but I just find it interesting. And so let's go to Mark chapter 12, verse 36. Uh, chapter 35, while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? In verse 36, David himself says by the Holy Spirit, awesome. 
The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so David is, is, is uh, David. So Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious people and, and whatnot. He says, well, how can this be? How can he be his Lord if he's so far down the line in his lineage? You know, I tell you how this can be. This is revealing me. You know, and so, again, Jesus is pointing to himself with regard to the fulfillment of this particular scripture or this song. In verse 37, it says, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? You know, and the, the crowd was, you know, was listening to him. And, and I can imagine, for whatever reason, and I don't understand this dynamic, but for whatever reason, when you have um, an organization, particularly if it's a voluntary organization, there are people that are part of the organization that secretly despise the leadership of that organization. And so I'm always wondering, why are you here? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't get it. You know, come here and they just complain and murmur and this and all this. Don't you got something better to do? I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't want to be in a situation where I'm participating in something and going to something, and all I can do is sit back and complain about the people that are leading the organization. Again, particularly if it's a voluntary organization. I understand, you know, work and that sort of thing, but I don't get the voluntary thing, you know. And so I say that because it says here, you know, after uh, Jesus questions, you know, how can this be? It says, and the large crowd was listening to him with delight. And so when I read that, I said, there are people in that crowd that don't like the Sadducees and Pharisees, you know. And so when Jesus is speaking, they're saying, Go get them, Jesus. Go get them. <laughs> Go get them, Jesus. You know. All right. So let's go to Psalm The Psalm of David says in verse one, save me, God, for the water has risen to my neck. I have sunk deep. I've sunk in deep mud and there is no footing. I have come into deep water and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary from my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without cause are more numerous than those than the hairs of my head. My deceitful enemies who would destroy me are powerful, though I did not steal, I must repay. And so you see, this is uh, David is coming from a place of anguish. He's saying, Look, I, I've got so many enemies, I can't even count them. I haven't even done anything, but they want to strangle me. Let's go to John 15. 
verse 23. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not be guilty of sin. This is a very interesting verse right here. Remember, I forget what scripture it is. Jesus says, you believe because you have seen. But blessed are those who believe and have not seen. That refers to all of us. And so we see here, if one had not, if I had not done the works among them, in other words, if they had not witnessed the works that I have done, they would not be guilty of sin. You see, if they had never seen me, then they wouldn't be guilty. But since they have seen me and they have witnessed what I've, what I've done, now there's no more excuse. So because they have met a higher degree of revelation, all excuses go by the wayside. That means they are now eligible for a stricter judgment. And so there is a danger in the pursuit of revelation because once things get revealed to you, that excuse gets taken out of your quiver. You know, there is a prophetic nature to the cliche, ignorance is bliss. (laughs) that's essentially what jesus is saying right here he said if i had not done the works among them that no one else has done they would not be guilty of sin now that they have seen and hated both me and my father see but now that they have seen They hate me and my father. Now that I have revealed the truth to them, now that I have shown them something that they have never seen before, they hate me and my father. But this happens so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason, which is exactly what David was saying. They hated me for no reason. You know, they, I'm required to pay back stuff I didn't even steal. Psalms 22. <clears throat> Another Psalm of David, chapter 1. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so uh, far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? This one should be obvious. Okay, again, David is crying out with regard to his situation. He's feeling abandoned by the Lord. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? 
Let's go to Matthew 27. Verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So, in a sense, Jesus is what? The great, 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 grandson of David. And so, you know, David's in anguish. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And we see here Jesus is reciting the same thing. Let's go to Psalm 31. Verse 1, Lord, it's another Psalm of David, Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced. Save me by your righteousness. Listen closely to me. Rescue me quickly. Be a rock of refuge for me, a mountain fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. You lead and guide me uh, for your namesake. You will free me from from the net that is secretly set for me, for you are my refuge. In verse 5, into your hand I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, Lord God of truth. Does that sound familiar? Luke 23. Verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three. Because the sun's light failed, the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. So we get, again, we see here David saying the same thing. Let's go to Numbers chapter 2. have that wrong because it's not Numbers chapter 2. Wait a minute, John 314. Somebody have a pen? Joyce, let me see your pen for a second. <laughs> Thank you. Let me come back to that one. There you go. Alright, let's go to First Kings chapter 10.
Verse 1. The queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's fame, connected with the name of the Lord, and came to test him with difficult questions. It seems like, and I know that, that this used to happen in Rome a lot, uh, with, the, with the philosophers of Socrates, Plato, and so on and so forth, that a lot of times people in royalty are sitting around and just thinking. You know, the Queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's fame, fame for what? His wisdom. Right. Connected with the name of the Lord and came to test him with difficult questions. So she heard about this guy that had a lot of wisdom, sat back and contemplated, let me go talk to him. <laughs> let me see what he's got to say. Let's go to Matthew chapter 12. In verse 42. And it says in verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment uh, with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. And so Jesus is using the Old Testament scriptures to, to, to remind them what the Queen of Sheba did with regard to her visiting Solomon because she heard of his wisdom. But he's condemning those in his presence. He says, she did this and she's going to judge you because one greater than Solomon is here and you're treating me like dirt. <laughs> that's essentially what he's telling them he's revealing to them who he is I am the son of God I'm greater than Solomon and look you had uh, people outside of the Jewish nation coming in to visit Solomon simply because they heard about his wisdom and they wanted to partake of that wisdom and so they traveled great distances to go visit him here I am in your presence I've revealed to you who I am. You have witnessed things. Yet you treat me this way. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 17. Verse 1, now Elijah the Tishbite from uh, the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. So this is Elijah prophesying to, to King Ahab what's going to happen. He says nothing is going, essentially nothing is going to happen until I say it's going to happen, right? <laughs> In other words, it's not over until I say it's over. <laughs> and so we drop down to verse 8. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Get up and go to Zarephath, that belongs to Sidon. And so get up and go outside of the Jewish nation. 
so this is the, the Lord telling Elijah what to do. Get up and leave. And stay there. Look, I have commanded a woman who is a widow to provide for you there. <clears throat> so first he prophesies that there's not going to be any dew or any rain or anything. Then he tells him to get up, leave the nation, and go to this other place because this woman, she's going to provide for your needs there. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. Verse 24. So Jesus is saying, look, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his own town. But I say to you, there are certain. Let me stop right there for a second. Some of you have this problem in your house where someone's will listen to people outside your house, but they won't listen to you. Or you will listen to people outside the house, but you won't listen to somebody inside the house. I've said for a number of years, you can take somebody straight out of Jackson prison, put them in a coat, a suit, and a briefcase, and people will listen to them about finances because he's a stranger than they will somebody that they've known for 20 years. And the reason is we get too familiar with somebody's background. And because of that, we don't give them the liberty to grow and evolve. So we keep them in that place. And so when you see somebody, you don't see them as a 35-year-old. You see them when they were 14 and and messing up. And so, you know, you know, I'm glad the Lord doesn't do that with us. He gives us the opportunity to grow and evolve. But we don't necessarily give that opportunity to other people, even people that we say we love. And so, so Jesus is saying, he's just giving the truth here. A prophet is essentially not respected in his own town. You have to bring somebody from the outside to say the same thing. I'm sure somebody in that room is in this room is very familiar with that. When you bring somebody from the outside who essentially says the same thing you've been saying, but now all of a sudden people are listening. <laughs> it's the truth. It's 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 the truth. What, what's the phrase? What's the what's the phrase? Familiarity breeds what? Now, contempt sounds real heavy, but it, familiarity breeds uh, breeds um, lack of respect, right? How can you know more about this than I do? That's not possible. I'm not going to listen to you. Now you you won't tell them that. But that's how you'll respond. <laughs> and then somebody else is like, <laughs> so somebody else comes and says the same thing. Now you have all kind of activity in that area. And it's like, wait a minute. Look, haven't I been telling you this for 10 years and got nothing? And this person comes and says the same thing. And now you can't stop acting. 
Jesus says, truly, I tell you. And so not only this is not only is this truth, this is truth, truth. (laughs) Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there are certainly many widows in Israel. In there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days, when the sky was shut up for three days and six months. Or excuse me, three years and six months, while the great famine came over all the land. Yet Isaiah was not sent to any of them, except he was sent to a widow in Zarephath, at Zarephath in Sidon. And so, he said, in the land, in the land. Elijah wasn't sent to minister and give relief to anybody in the land. Why? Because Jesus is saying that a prophet is not accepted in in his hometown. In other words, he was saying he was he was instructing Elijah what to do so that Elijah wouldn't waste his time. So the Lord said, look, if I send you to some of these knuckleheads. Nothing's going to happen. You have to go outside where your word will be accepted, right? She did everything he said, he asked. There was no pushback, she just, that wouldn't have existed had he done that in the land, right? And let's go to Jonah. I love the book of Jonah for a few reasons. You know, it's not very long, so you can just get through it. It it cuts to the quick, you know. But Jonah reminds me of me. He didn't want to hear what the Lord had to say because he knew what the Lord was going to do. And what the Lord was going to do, he didn't want the Lord to do. Right? I don't want to go. Not only do I not want to go, I'm going to go in the other direction. You want me to go save these people. I hate them. I don't want to save them. You know, Jonah was surly. I mean, he was, he tried everything in his power to get out of what he was supposed to do. And his response when the people were saved, he said, I knew you were going to do that. You know, that's why I didn't want to go. <laughs> I want them to burn. (laughs) And by all accounts, they kind of deserve to burn. Mm -hmm. Right? (laughs) So Jonah is looking at things from a perspective of what he considers to be justice. Right? Now we can bring it in present context. There are some people out there that we don't really care for. And being good Christian folk, we don't want to say 
that we want so-and-so to burn. But in our hearts, tell me that's not true. It does no good to pray for our leaders if we don't pray for our leaders with the right heart. We might as well just do something else. <laughs> you know, I'm not a fan of the party presently in control. But if I pray from a perspective of uh, obedience and sacrifice, and there's no mercy in there, let me rephrase, there's no sincere mercy in there, I might as well shut up. <laughs> you know? And that can be a challenge. You know, I just remember, um, when I when I the the the, the you know uh, was it first Corinthians first Corinthians or thirteen you know love is this love is that love is this. I remember the first time it hit me that there's nothing in here that has to do with emotions <laughs> nothing it's like can I sincerely desire the best things for your family of somebody that I don't like. Yeah, I can do that, and I can mean it, you know. Can I sincerely, you know, desire good health for you? Can I sincerely, you know, can I, can I, can I not murmur about you? Can I, can I not have hatred for you in my heart? See, I can be an emotional agnostic. I don't, I don't you know, I, I don't hate you, I don't love you, I just flatline. And so from that perspective, I can do those things that that scripture speaks about. <clears throat> now, if you were to, if it included emotions in there, then I don't know if I could do it, but it doesn't. You know? And so we can love people that we do not like. We can biblically love people that we do not like. And so that's one of the things, whenever we have people over a house or whatever, <clears throat> in the summertime, I usually talk about things of the Lord and that sort of thing. That's the message I try to get across to people. You don't have to like somebody in order to love them. Sounds weird. But it's true. You don't have to hang out with them. You know, you don't have to be best buds with them, but you can still love them. Sincerely, you can still sincerely love them. Because again, man might not be able to see, but the Lord has these, these kind of glasses that, that we don't know about that get to look inside. You know, even an x-ray can't see what's truly inside. A CAT scan can't see what's truly inside. An MRI can't see what's truly inside. But the Lord's spectacles, they can see what's inside. And so we can fake out everybody else, but we can't fake out him.
And so in Jonah, we see, uh, drop down to verse 11, chapter 1, I'm sorry. It says, so they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea is getting worse and worse. And so Jonah is on this ship trying to get away. <laughs> and so the Lord raises up the seas, you know, and Jonah's like, well, this is my fault. <laughs> this, this, this is why this is happening. And so the other crew members are saying, you know, what should we do to you? Because he confessed to him, you know, this is my fault. So he said, what should we do to you? so that the sea will calm down for us, for the sea was getting worse and worse. Verse 12, he answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. How many of us would have said that? <laughs> you know, this is my fault. You know what? Throw me overboard. <laughs> I wouldn't admit it that it was me, but anyway... He admitted that it was him, and then he said, pick me up and throw me overboard. The only way for you to get saved is to get rid of me. That's basically what he's saying. For I know that I am to blame for this grief, for this great storm that is against you. <laughs> pick me up, throw me overboard, because it's my fault. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. So initially, they ignored him. Initially, <laughs> but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life. Don't charge us with innocent blood for you, Lord, have done just as you please. Then, <laughs> then they picked him up. <laughs> then, they picked, then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. They're like, sorry, dog, come here. You got to go. <laughs> we try, but he's not relenting, you know, and so it's, it's getting worse, and so you got to get out of here. So they picked him up and threw Jonah in the sea, and the sea stopped raging. The men were seized by great fear. Uh, the men were seized by great fear of the Lord, and they offered, to sacrifice, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So let's go to Matthew chapter 12. In verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered them. An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. I think I said this in one of the other classes. <laughs> you know, he's expanding on this a little bit. You know, when you see, Lord, show me a sign that this is you and whatnot. And so when they said that, he called them evil and adulterous. Because Jesus was referencing, thou shalt not test the, the Lord thy God. And so to me, when you're asking for a sign, you're saying, prove it. You know, you're issuing a test. Prove it to me. And so he calls that evil and adulterous. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. 
And so Jesus, again, is saying, look, you're familiar with the story of Jonah. He was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. Just like he was in the belly of the whale, I'm going to be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And he says, but he says, so the son of man will be in the belly of the earth. So again, he's revealing to them who he is. So he's teaching and revealing. He's saying, this is what the deal is. And oh, by the way, I am he, I am going to, it's, Jonah was a type in a shadow, but this is the real deal. I'm gonna go down in the belly of the earth, deal with some things I need to deal with down there, and then come back, and then uh, game on. And so, I hope that we've been able to show uh, all of the very, very, very um, unambiguous connections between the New Testament and Old Testament, specifically between Jesus and Old Testament scriptures. <clears throat> the parallels that exist uh, with him and David, you know, and, 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 and things that he was referencing in order to reveal uh, knowledge, wisdom, and himself to specific, well, to everybody, but in, in many cases specifically to the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees and, and whatnot. And so it was very critical for Jesus to be pointing things out to them that they should have already known. And so it's not like he was using some new doctrine or whatever. He's saying, look, this is said here, and this is what that means. And so he was re revealing to them mysteries. They had to be mysteries because they didn't know. Right? And so with that, we are done. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the revelation of your word. And Father, we realize that as we become more familiar with your word, its tenets and precepts and concepts, that a greater responsibility, a greater onus is placed on us in order to reflect the wisdom of your word, Father God. For there are those that are out there that are lost and that are seeking, Father, and it's a time for the authentic. It's the time for the real. It's not a time for, for the, the, the counterfeit or for the hypocrites or, or anything like that, Father God. And Father God, your word says that you desire mercy. And Father, forgive us, for we have not been merciful in all cases to all people, Father God. And Father, we just ask that we would have that pure heart as we go forth from this evening, regardless of who we encounter, Father God, we know that that is a potential citizen of the kingdom, regardless of what state they may be in today, Father, regardless of what nasty things they may spew out of their mouths, Father God. Father, give us the vision to see through those things. Give us the heart to desire to see through those things. For what the world needs 
what our country needs, what our state needs, what our cities needs, what our communities need, what our neighborhoods need, is authentic believers reflecting your truth, carrying your hope, dispensing your wisdom, and saying nothing and doing nothing that we don't hear you say that we don't see you do. So, Father, we thank you. We honor you and we praise you. In Jesus' name.